Lord, I uh, just want to say thanks again for Nate and Brittany, just how cool it is that they would, they would jump up and, and host a party and, and see hundreds of their neighbors show up and, and just have a good time. And then from there, the relationships that are built. I know that that could be echoed across as many people have invested in their neighbors and their coworkers and, and have similar stories. And Lord, we just want to keep those going. We just want to continue to invest in the people around us. And then, Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, I pray for Matt. I thank you for his passion for it. I thank you for his love for you and your son, Jesus. And, um, and so, Lord, just as we've prayed multiple times that you would be the better teacher today. Holy Spirit, make this clear. That's what we're asking. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been in this resilience series now for 10 weeks. Today's the 10th day, and we've covered some pretty big names, some heavy hitters, if you will, folks like Esther, folks like Stephen, Nathan the prophet. These are people we might describe saying that they're a number one, right? They're, they're the ones that are taking initiative and they're taking action and they get all of the glory, but they're also the ones answering all the questions when things don't go well, right? These are the people at the press conferences front and center. And we know that that position, just by virtue of being number one, means it's got to come with some resilience, but the number one is not the only one that has to be resilient. Oftentimes, it's their number two. It's the person who's the second fiddle. They're in the second chair. They're, they're the, the one behind the scenes, and they, they don't get all of the glory necessarily. They're, they're working and moving in ways that aren't as visible. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you a name of a number one, and I want you just to tell me who the number two is, okay? You think you guys can handle that? Okay, all right, so if I need to go get the candy bucket over there from elementary, just to get us moving here, I'll do it. We can toss out some candy, all right? So number one here, Michael Jordan, who is his number two? Yeah, we all know Scottie Pippen, right? If I say Batman, you would say Robin. If I say Mario, you would say Luigi. Okay, so we get it. Those are good, easy ones. I got a few harder ones for you. My generation, Will Smith as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, some of you are like, oh, is it Carlton, really? Yeah, I, I would go Carlton on that one, right? Um, okay, back to sports. Tom Brady, who's his number two? It's Gronk, right? It's definitely Gronk. Some of you might be saying, well, maybe Belichick was his number two. I don't know, you know but we'll leave that for another day. You got any history buffs in the room? Yeah, no, nobody raises their hand for that one, right? They're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. Well, how about Abraham Lincoln, famous number one? Who's his number two? Yeah, you might say, Grant, you know, I'm going to go with his vice president, whose name we don't know, is Hannibal Hamlin. Okay, so not all the times do we know who that number two is. How about Meriwether Lewis? We all know the last name. That would be Lewis and Clark. What's his first name? Anybody? Hey, way to go. Who was that? Good job. Wait, all right. That's, that's good. Yeah, give him a round of applause. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. I love it. I love it. He didn't raise his hand and he said he was a history buff, but he is. Let's take a look at the Bible. What about Moses? Aaron, yeah, his brother Aaron, right? How about Paul? He might have more than one, by the way. So who's, who's Paul's number two? Timothy, maybe Barnabas, right? So we clearly see there's number ones, there's number twos. They take different characteristics. They gotta have different things to be resilient. And I would offer you this. To be a resilient number two, I think you gotta do at least these three things. First, you gotta recognize greatness in whoever the number one is. Secondly, you've got to demonstrate loyalty to that number one. And finally, as a resilient number two, I think you'll see today, you're going to have to depend on truth and not your emotions. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, uh, go ahead and open it up 
to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're gonna talk about a resilient number two today. His name is Jonathan, and his number one is David, as in David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, that David. His number two is a guy named Jonathan. Chapter 18, and we're gonna read the first four verses. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, I've already told you that Jonathan is a resilient number two, but I want to show you why I think he is. Okay, so we're going to back it up a little bit, give you some history here. Russell preached on Hannah last week in her resilient prayer. She wanted a son, and that son was born, and his name was Samuel. It's where we get the name for the book, First Samuel. Samuel's going to be a great number one. He's going to be a leader of the people. He's going to be faithful. But the people get tired of Samuel and say, we want a king to lead us. We want somebody who will fight our battles. We want somebody who will judge us. Give us a king, Samuel. And Samuel goes to God, and God says, don't worry, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them a king. So Samuel anoints the king, and the first king's name is going to be King Saul. And Saul is going to start off, he looks like a king. The Bible tells us that he's a head taller than everybody else. He's going to have some early military success, so he acts like a king. And the Bible even describes Saul saying that the Spirit of God was with him. So this is going to be really great, isn't it? Israel's going to be fine. They've got an earthly king now. It's all going to be good, right? Well, unfortunately, no. We know how this story goes. Saul's going to fail, and he's going to have a lot of problems with this group of people called the Philistines, and there's going to be a really famous one named Goliath. What word goes with Goliath? David and Goliath, right? So that's where we are when we get to chapter 18. David has killed Goliath, and now we've got Saul, who's the king, and he's, he's not really a great king. We've got David, who was anointed king a couple chapters earlier, but he's like king-elect, the, the future king. And then we've got Jonathan, who is Saul's son, who, even though we don't live in an ancient Eastern culture, we all know who's next in line to be the king. It's going to be the son, Jonathan. Let's see how this plays out, because I know if I'm Jonathan, I'm not going over to this shepherd boy that just killed the giant and pledging my love and my soul to this guy. Seems a little awkward, right? Like, I'm a warrior in my own right, by the way. If you want to read a really great chapter, back up to chapter 14, before there was David and Goliath, there was Jonathan and the Philistines. The dude was a warrior. He killed 20 men in a half-acre field and scared off an entire garrison of 600 Philistines. This guy knows greatness. And he, the Bible tells us in that verse one that he loved David as much as he loved himself. Well, why do you think that might be? I've got two reasons why. When David was in the, the camp and he hears the giant Goliath, he hears him taunting Israel, and David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? I think Jonathan's ears kind of perk up like, wait a minute, who's that guy? Then he sees David go down into battle, and David doesn't go out there strutting his stuff. He's not got a sword. He's too small for the armor. David goes down there and he looks that giant in the eye and he says, you come at me with a sword and a spear. I come at you in the name of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. 
David looks at Goliath and says, I'm not going to whoop you. My God is going to whoop you. What did we just sing? He's fighting our battles, right? That's David's faith. I think Jonathan loves David as himself because he sees his incredible faith. Jonathan's is described as a man of great faith when he takes on that garrison. His armor bearer and he, just two people, but he says, God's going to deliver us. I think Jonathan recognizes David's greatness because he lives out this same life himself. Pretty cool, right? So verse three tells us that they made a covenant and I'm not gonna unpack all that for you, but it's a big deal. Think of a promise to the nth degree. It's, it's legally binding. It's, it's messy. There's this whole deal. It's, 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 it's a strange act, but it's a really important act and it's really significant. It's looking at someone and saying, I'm with you. I will put my life on the line so much. That's how, that's how much I'm with you. And then look at verse four. Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. There's a lot of wrong ways to interpret this. I'm gonna tell you what I, what I think is really happening here, okay? Jonathan, remember, he's the king's son. His royal robe is his identity. It tells everyone around him, I am the king's son and I am the future king. So as he takes this off, he looks at David and he says, you're the future king. You're number one, and I'm gonna get behind you. He's recognizing greatness and he's aligning with it. It's pretty cool. Some language you could use to describe this. He's saying, you're my blood brother. You're my second self. My life is now your life. That's pretty cool. That's resiliency. That's what a number two does. It says, I'm not, I'm not the one. You're the one. So David's killed Goliath, and he's the new guy. He's popular. Everybody loves him. The ladies are singing songs about him. You know, they say Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Well, guess what that does to Saul? You think he's real happy about that? No, he's enraged. He tries to kill David. He's going to put David in his place. Saul is number one, and David better be number two or even further down the line than that. I don't need David causing problems for me. So he gets angry, he wants him dead. He, he misses with the spear twice, by the way. And so he comes up with another plan. He says, you know, he killed that, that giant Goliath and I had told everybody that the, the prize for that would be getting to marry my daughter. So I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna add a bride price to that. I'm gonna make David do something in order to marry my daughter. So here's what he does. He says, David, I want you to go kill 100 Philistines. Well, David's a warrior. And everybody loves him, so why would he turn this challenge down? He goes, and he doesn't just kill 100 Philistines. He kills 200 Philistines for good measure. Why, why, why not double up? Comes back in front of Saul and says, here's the proof. I killed 200 Philistines. I'll marry your daughter. Now, now slow down here for just a minute. King Saul, Jonathan. Jonathan's sister, her name is Michelle. And David just married Jonathan's sister. So what does that make David his brother-in-law. And we all know about brother-in-laws, right? This deal is a twisted triangle, all kinds of stuff going on here. If you like to watch The Crown on Netflix, this is a really bad episode of The Crown, okay? It's just gonna get worse from here. So Saul can't kill David. He thinks, well, maybe I'll get Jonathan to kill David. And Jonathan says, no, dad, David has helped you. He's not hurt you. We want David on our side. Why would we try to kill him? Well, we know Saul wants to kill him because he threatens his power. So if, if Saul can't do it and Jonathan can't do it, well, we'll just keep, we'll just keep chasing after him. And so if you got, got your Bible, look at verse uh, chapter 20. 
and we're gonna be in verse 11 here, and, and David is asking Jonathan, why does your dad wanna kill me? Like, I've done all these great things for him. And so this is what Jonathan says. He answered David, come on, let's go out to the field. So both of them went out to the field. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable towards you, will I not sin for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may God punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so you may go in peace. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, treat me with the Lord's faithful love. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your faithful love from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Jonathan's saying this. He says, David, I'll put my life on the line here. You know, I don't know why dad wants to keep, keep going after you. I kind of get this idea. It's like Darth Vader and Luke, right? It's like there is still good in him. I think Jonathan wants the best. He wants to think the best. He wants dad to, to change his ways, but it's not happening. So David says, look, I'm gonna find this out for you. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna make sure. And if dad's for you, I'll tell you and we'll bring you back in and life will be great. But if dad's not for you, I'm gonna make sure that I do that. And if I don't do that, I'm willing to die for it. That's demonstrating loyalty. And that's what a resilient number two does. A resilient number two says, I've said you're great, I'm with you, and I'm with you so much, I'll give up my life for you. So when I think about the way this tends to happen, you know, if you remember um, Scotty Pippen retires and and we've got the next best thing, all these guys are coming up, right? The next star in the NBA, and what do all the reporters wanna do? They wanna go and they wanna talk to Pippen and they wanna ask him this question, hey, hey, Scotty, is Kobe, is he better than MJ? What about LeBron? Is LeBron the greatest? Come on, Scotty, remove your loyalty from MJ and let's go to the new guy here. And Scotty tells him the same thing all the time, like, I played with the greatest. I know who the great one is, I recognize it, and I'm not gonna remain loyal to anybody else. I'm gonna remain loyal to him. And that's what Jonathan's doing here. He's being an incredible friend. This happens in scripture though too. I'm gonna give you two contrasting examples. In the beginning in the garden, Adam and Eve, and the tempter comes in and he says, hey, eat of that fruit because when you do it, you'll be like God. Translation, you'll be number one, and they fail. They remove their loyalty from God and they put it on themselves. But then we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus who undergoes temptation from that same tempter, brings him up on top of the mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he says, if you'll bow down to me, I'll make you number one. I'll give you all of these things. Jesus remains faithful and loyal to his father refutes Satan with scripture three times, that's pretty cool, and says, do not test the Lord your God. I will remain loyal to my father. Not gonna feed into emotions, I'm not gonna cave in this deal, I'm, I'm gonna do what's right. So here we are, David's still not in Saul's good graces, doesn't look like he's ever gonna be there. And if you thought this situation couldn't get any worse, it's fixing to get way worse, okay? It's gonna get even worse. David's on the run. He's trying to get away from Saul still. 
And uh, Saul now is willing to kill anybody who has anything to do with David. So not just David himself, he wants to kill people, his friends, like his own son, Jonathan. Saul throws the spear at Jonathan and he misses. Jonathan escapes. David, at one point in this section, he goes to see some priests and they help him and encourage him. Well, Saul gets wind of that and pulls all the priests in, says, why are you helping David? You should be loyal to me. Doesn't like what they have to say, so he has them all killed, 85 of them. 85 priests killed because one man couldn't stand this problem of David being unfaithful to him, not being loyal to him, right? So David's collected this group of ragtag guys and they are described in these terms. They're desperate, they're in debt, they're discontented, they're hiding out, and it's a pretty bleak situation. I want you to think about this for a minute. In, in the most trying time in your life, if you've ever felt isolated, if you've ever wondered, is anybody really here? Is anybody for me? And you were, you were just hoping that the right person would show up at the right time and speak the right words. Well, that's what Jonathan's fixing to do. Let's take a look in chapter 23. I'm gonna read three verses starting in verse 16. Then Saul's son, Jonathan, came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true. Then the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horesh while Jonathan went home. This could have turned out a lot of different ways. Think about it. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. He could have chosen not to go to David at all. He could have seen the writing on the wall, said, you know what? Eventually, dad's going to catch up to him. He's going to kill him, and that's going to make me king. He could have chosen that. He could have abandoned David out there and just let him go. He could have also gone to David and brought all of the drama with him, right? And all of the emotion and gone to David and said, David, it's bad. It's really bad. I know dad tried to kill you. Well, guess what? He tried to kill me too. There's no hope anymore, David. I don't know what to do. Keep running, go far away and let me pray for you and I'm gonna send you on your way. I, I got nothing else for you. He could have done that. But instead, he shows up and he cuts through his emotions and he gives them the one thing he needs in that moment, the truth. He tells him the truth. It says he encouraged him in his faith in God and he says, my father will not lay a hand on you. You will be king, and I will be your second in command. When I think about those hard moments in life, emotional moments, what we really need in those moments is we need to hear the truth. If you're a parent in the room, you know that there's not a more emotional group of people on the planet than children, right? And the smaller they are, the more emotional they are typically. Well, not always, I guess. It changes as they get older too. So, so I want to share a story with you. I've got four of them at home. I've got four kids. And uh, my oldest is my daughter, Greta, and she just turned eight. And, and I, I could brag on Greta all day. She's my, my princess and the apple of my eye, and I love her. She's daddy's girl. And uh, she just finished her first grade year at Lake Murray Elementary School. And so we've been explaining to her about this incredible thing that's coming up called summer. 
And summer's going to be great. It's going to be the best thing. You're going to have so much fun, and it's going to be awesome. So we went to one of the playdates at the park that happened right after school let out. And Greta played hard, and she played so hard that she got some blisters in her hands that were pretty gnarly. Center of her palms, those monkey bars really did a number, okay? And so she's played for hours. We get in the van, and all of a sudden I hear it. I hear the crying. I hear the emotion, right? Because the pain didn't exist until you saw the injury, right? Isn't that how it works? Like you, you, could have, you could have been doing everything, but the moment those blisters show up, it's like, oh, no, my world is caving in. Summer's not so great after all. I'm not going to have any, any more fun. Summer is ruined. I mean, I'm hearing all of it, right? It's just terrible. They hurt so bad. It's the worst thing ever. We, 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 we get home, and we, we calm down a little bit, and we know, okay, we got to do bath time, and we got to brush teeth, and intermixed into all of that are more tears, and summer's been declared dead like six times at this point, right? It's, it's gone, and there's no hope there anymore, and so we get done with all that, and then we get, we get to bedtime itself, and our final steps in the routine, we're going to turn the lights off, and we're going to pray, and we're going to sing a song. So we do that, and there's still some of the, the sniffles there, right? And you know what I'm talking about? And I hear the same type of thing. This was really bad. Summer's awful. I don't know what I'm going to do. My hands hurt. They're never going to get better. It's ruined. And I look at her and I say, Greta, your summer's not ruined. And yeah, it it does hurt. There's pain involved. And today's probably going to be the hardest day there is. But your hands are going to get better. And this is not the end of the world, and it's not the end of summer, and you will be okay. In that moment, she asks this question, which is really the million-dollar question. She says, Daddy, have you ever had blisters like this before? You know what question she's really asking in that moment, don't you? She doesn't care about my blisters. She wants to know one thing. Do you really understand what I'm going through? Do you really get the pain that I'm experiencing right now? Can you relate to me in my weakness? And so I look at her and say, sweetheart, I've had blisters before. The next question is, did they get better? Yes, sweetheart, they got better. And my hands were stronger as a result of it. And that's what's going to happen to you. That's the truth. Shortly after that, she made the decision on her own. She said, Dad, I want to I memorize this verse in the Bible. She loves to read. She's an incredible reader. And so she's, she'd heard us talk about it because we're talking about it all the time. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. And here's what it says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence or anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In that moment with Greta, she doesn't need me to match her emotions. She certainly doesn't need me to to leave her on her own. But what she really needs from me is the truth. She needs to know the truth. I wish I could say that I I hit a home run every time in that situation. That's really, nine times out of the 10, that does not happen. So let me just be really clear here. I'm not a perfect parent. Um, 
but she was incredibly gracious and received that. And we summarize that verse in this way where we say, hey, are you thinking about what's good, right, and true? So when the emotions ratchet up, do we let them carry us away? Or do we stop and think about what's the truth? That's what a resilient number two would do. They would depend on the truth even in the midst of emotions. So Jonathan, he's a resilient number two. He's an incredible friend. He recognizes greatness. He demonstrates loyalty. And he depends on the truth. So I've got a few questions for you. My, my question to you is really this. Do you recognize the greatness of God? Or do you want to be recognized as great? Do you demonstrate loyalty to him or loyalty to yourself? When it gets really hard, do you depend on truth or do you let your emotions and your circumstances determine what you do next? I'd be fooling you if I told you that Jonathan was the greatest number two who ever lived. If we ended the sermon here, I would do you a huge disservice. So let me tell you about the best number two of them all, the one who had the most resilience. It's a guy we know, Jesus Christ himself. You don't have to turn to these passages, but I'm gonna read them to you. I just want you to listen for language of the number two. See if you can catch it. Philippians 2, verses five through eight. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Did you hear it? Number two, when the disciples are with Jesus and they're arguing with him about who's gonna be greatest in the kingdom and one of their moms is involved and make sure they sit at your right hand, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. You remember when he's in the garden at Gethsemane and he says these words, he says, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. You hear some emotion there? It's pretty bad, isn't it? Can you think about what would happen if Jesus had let his emotions drive him in that moment and he gave it all away and said, no, I'm not gonna do this. But instead he says what? Not my will, but yours be done demonstrated incredible loyalty even in the midst of the hardest circumstances. And I think he was able to do it because he knew what the truth was. And here it is in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. How was Jesus able to endure? What did it say? He knew there was joy set before him. He knew what was on the other side. He knew when I get done with this whole deal, not only am I going back to sit at the right hand of the Father, but I'm gonna rescue mankind in the process, and that's what I came to do. He knew the truth. He depended on the truth, and he acted accordingly. 
if Jesus Christ, the greatest man ever to walk on the face of the earth, would we all agree with that? Are there anybody in the room who says, no, he wasn't the greatest? We all know who the, the number one is, right? It's Jesus. But if he lived his life as a number two, the most resilient number two of all, how silly is it that we would walk around on the face of the earth as if we were a bunch of number ones? Let me pray for us. Lord, I, uh, I just confess that Many times in my life, I don't recognize your greatness. I want to recognize my own. And I also uh, find my loyalties being challenged and swayed and moved away from you and to myself. And even in the midst of trying circumstances full of emotion, I, I don't always run to the truth, Lord. I, I look to myself. And so wherever we are in the room, I pray that, uh, that your spirit would move in our hearts and we would, we would listen to you. And we would ultimately look at you and say, God, you're number one. Teach us how to be faithful number twos, how to be resilient number twos. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.